You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. Well, I also have John up here because I told him when you start a series and you read scripture, in my mind, it's either, when you read scripture, it's either in an English accent or an African-American preacher, you know, flair. And so I go, well, I've got John, my buddy, who's a, he can do the UK thing. So turn to your Bible to John chapter 11, verses 17, and we're going to read through verse 44. And I asked John to read our scripture for this morning. So in the big, thick Bibles in front of you, the bigger your Bible, the more holy you are. So grab the big, thick ones. Um, Page 1529 is where we'll start. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. The many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever believe, or whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. And is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Amen. That's God's word. Thank you so much, John. Let's pray. Father God, um, I know I have been through confronting mortality and death a lot in my life in these last few years, and I know I'm also in that season of life where you, you know, in my 20s, it's like, oh yeah, people die, I love Jesus, I'm going to heaven, I'll deal with the theory of that later. And then you get to different parts of life, and then you confront it, and death just sucks. And, but Jesus shares us something here. I think that's pretty powerful for us to understand and to see and to gaze at this morning. And I ask that you would use me in my own weakness um, to be a message, a messenger of, of your message. And um, we just give you the rest of this morning. And 
We just invite your spirit to be thick in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this headline, read it years and years ago when I actually was reading newspapers and paper. Um, 1993, it was a Los Angeles Times headline, and the headline said this. It said, rescuers laugh their way through daring rescue. Rescuers laugh their way through daring rescue. Apparently, the story is this young woman was driving home late at night in Los Angeles. And if you've ever driven Los Angeles, you know they have those really, really high overpasses. And so she was driving over one of these extremely high Los Angeles overpasses when she miscalculated the curve. And her car slammed into the guardrail. She totals her car, and her car is edging over the railing, teetering literally between life and death. That's the way the story went. And so the rescuer crews, they were called in, just like, man, so many first responders, the work that they do, it's such amazing work. And they carefully were able to remove her from the car to keep her from plunging. In the report, it was like it was plunging 80 feet below to her death. And they save her. And after the rescue, Los Angeles Times reporter came upon the crew as they were packing up their gear, and they were laughing hysterically as they were putting away their gear. And the reporter's like, this was kind of a scary thing. Why are you laughing? And here's what they said. They said, the whole time we were trying to get her out of the car, she was screaming, don't touch me. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. Don't touch me. I can do it myself. And so they were laughing hysterically. I tell you that story from the real life news because I think it's a good story that describes the interior of my own soul, Andy Lewis's soul. Uh, That whole, I can do it myself thing, it describes the deepest places in my own heart that still, even after following Jesus for about over 50 years, even after that, There's still a part in my heart that does not fully realize the dangling over death depravity within me that desperately needs God to do something drastic in order to rescue me from my drastic situation. Like there's a part of me, even after following Jesus, after 50 years, they're still like, don't touch me. I can do this myself. This this level, I don't get how depraved I actually am. And if I'm going to be completely honest, and I'm going to be, I have to add this, is that even when I do realize that I do have some level of depravity in me, I don't think my condition is as dangling over death, desperate as other people who I way too easily tell myself are in a much worse condition than I am. Now, I know you get what I'm talking about because you're human beings and you have this kind of same thing in you as well. You got it. I got it. Uh, Let me try to illustrate what I mean by this, or at least kind of bring it to your attention. Give you a little history lesson. In the fourth century, there was a monk. His name was Evagoras Ponticus. Mr. Ponticus came up with a thing that he called the eight evil thoughts for monks. It was kind of his way as like monks are being formed and following Jesus to kind of have some sense of an awareness of the things that trip us up. So he called them the eight evil thoughts. A couple centuries later in the 6th century, a guy who was called St. Gregory the Great, who later became Pope Gregory I, took those eight and turned them into seven to what we now today know as the seven deadly sins. I'll put them up on the screen. You can take a look at them. The seven deadly sins are this. Pride, 
greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Now, what I want you to do, just to kind of like take a look at what we're talking about as we enter into Lent, just take a quick glance at this list and just assess your condition. Just glance at it and assess what you think your condition is. Now, if you're anything like me, once you get past the point of asking yourself, what in the world is sloth? (laughs) But when you think about it, if you're anything like me, a quick glance at this says, woof, that's kind of a nasty list, (laughs) but I think I'm doing pretty good. At a glance, we probably don't think our condition is really all that desperate. But now here's what I want you to do. Take another look at this list, and this time ask yourself this question. From this list, which are the top two sins that I still way too easily find myself stumbling into? Now look at the list. Top two that I way too easily stumble into still. Suddenly, I'll admit to you, I have to admit that my top most common hardwired sins, theologians called the common hardwired sins of our lives, are besetting sins. That the top two in my life, I'm going to admit this, and you can, you can watch my life, I'm going to admit it, pride and greed, top two. And I wonder for you what you begin to recognize about your most common hardwired sin tendencies that put you in danger of self-destruction, just like my pride and greed put me in danger of self-destruction. Now, please understand, I'm not putting you through this list. I do not want to do this to bring this up to make you feel worse about yourself. Let's make that really clear. I'm trying to bring this up to help us have a greater love for Jesus and how he sets us free. Because today, we're doing this whole thing because today we're starting a study. It's the season of Lent. That's the whole reason why these two walls to my left and to my right are in black and why the walls are painted with the color light of purple. It's the season in which we enter into introspection. We try to slow it down and we try to consider the significant cost of what it costs for us to be rescued, for us to be saved. And what we're going to be doing in this study is just as John already read for us, we're going to study these moments of Jesus' heartbreak leading up to the cross. Because I think for me and I think for you that when we look at these key moments where Jesus' heart just breaks open, they are moments that reveal to us, oh my gosh, this is my true condition. And oh my gosh, this is what it cost Jesus to rescue me. So today, I think Jesus is going to help us take a very hard look at the horror of death. The horror of mortality. The topic that we don't ever want to have as a topic. So we're going to explore John chapter 11 verses 17 through 44. Now, most of you know your Bible stories pretty well. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, or you might have thought to yourself fairly, that is really weird to read up to just verse 44 and then not read past verse 44 and read the punchline. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, why did you have John stop at verse 44? That is very weird, Andy, and you're right. You would be right. Yes, the usual focus of the preaching camera is on Jesus calling Lazarus to come forth out of the grave, and I will give you that. But for Lent, for this church, I want to aim the camera 
at everyone in the scenes immediate responses to the tragedy of mortality. I'm taking the camera away from Lazarus rising from the dead. And that is awesome and that is amazing. And there's thousands and millions of sermons that have and should have been preached on it. But for us here in this time, I want to put the camera on the responses of the sisters and on Jesus. What are their immediate responses? And Lazarus' grieving sisters, Martha and Mary, they seek out Jesus and they express to him their immediate response and their immediate desires in grief. They're broken in grief. And Martha's the one who, if you follow her in the New Testament, she's the woman of action. And so she hears Jesus is on the way, and so she goes out and meets him. She's not waiting for him. She goes to him. And we'll put it up on the screen. Here's what she said. When she sees Jesus face to face, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. See, Martha's immediate grief response to Jesus is, and it's a common one for all of us in our grief, her response is, fix this. Jesus, come along and fix this. I've, I've seen you do all kinds of crazy stuff, Jesus. You've done all these crazy, amazing things, and we're your closest friends. You've eaten with us. Lazarus was your friend. Like, can't you do something to fix this for your closest friends? And I want to say, notice this. Martha doesn't really want to look at and honor the tragedy of mortality. I don't want to to deal with the tragedy of mortality. It just is what it is. She just wants a fix right now. Or... After Jesus tells her in the text, well, your brother will rise again, her response of, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, in the last day, blah, 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 she, either that she wants it fixed right now or I will just steal myself to get through this life until the sweet by and by when I guess all things will be made better. Fix this. After Martha tells Mary that Jesus is looking for her, Mary, who's sitting there being surrounded by grievers and wailers around her who grieve, She gets up and she starts following after Jesus and she's followed by all these grieving people following her going, where's she going? Where's she going? And the Bible says, here's what her response was in John 11, 32. It says, she fell at his feet. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And verse 33 adds, and she wept. See, Mary says, I don't know if you, did you follow this? Mary says almost the exact same words as Martha. It's the same words. But her message to Jesus is a little bit different. <laughs> Martha's is clearly fix this. Mary's is soothe this. Jesus, I know you've been the one who's been a source of comfort in my life. Would you bring me the kindness and the comfort that I need in my grief right now? And, and again, but I want you to notice this. Martha didn't want to look at death. Mary doesn't want to look at death. I don't want to deal and stare at death and honor the fact that this thing is horrific. Death is a horror. She just wants comfort, soothing comfort. Now, I want to be really clear. Just be very careful here. There is nothing wrong. And I want to repeat that. There's nothing wrong with the immediate responses and the desires of these two grieving sisters. In fact, 
Well, I know that for two reasons in the text. First of all, I know it's not wrong that they have these, fix this, soothe this part of grief. It's part of the natural flow of grief. But I know it's not wrong because, number one, Jesus doesn't shut them down. And number two, Jesus is going to go on to minister to those grief responses and desires. So I want to be really, really clear that you don't take from this as like, you can't say these things to God in your grief but fix this and soothe this. No, you can't and you should and you must. It's part of grief. But what I want to do is what I'm trying to do is I want you to see the sister's immediate responses in comparison to Jesus's immediate response. And here's what happens. We put it up. John 11, verses 33 through 35. When Jesus saw her, he's talking about Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now, I want you to highlight something. This is really important. You have to highlight in your mind the fact that Jesus already knew the tear-eradicating outcome moments away. He already knew the sorrow turning into joy, like in the few moments. He already knew that. He knew he was going to resuscitate. Lazarus, Lazarus is not a resurrection. It's a resuscitation because he then did die later. He knew he would resuscitate Lazarus miraculously. He also knew that he himself was going to conquer death, kill death, murder death through his own resurrection. He knew he would do that. And he knew that those outcomes were immediately going to turn sorrow into joy. And if you're like most people, at least like me, you're not going to waste any tears. If you know your sorrow is going to be wiped out in like literally the next few moments, we're not going to waste any emotional energy on this. And yet, Jesus doesn't dismiss the loss, the pain, or the grief over death. Here's what the text says. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The word deeply moved in the original Koine Greek, the business language of the first century, it's a word that normally in the Koine Greek language reserved for the description of an angry, dangerous, snorting horse. Like, just snorting angry. And the word trouble means to be agitated in spirit. And forgive my language, I don't know how else to describe it, but I think John the Apostle is trying to tell us Jesus was pissed off at death. Pissed. And then it also says this, Jesus wept. Meaning Jesus burst into sobbing. And apparently, I was reading a little bit more widely, there was a different word used for the people who were grieving and wailing with the sisters. That was like a loud shrieking kind of word in Greek. This is one that's more internalized, shaking, convulsing, quieter, but sobbing. Jesus did not move past and dismiss the horror of death. Even though he he knew he was going to defeat it, he honors the horror of the thing that God never wanted for us, for us to be mortal and to have to die. 
And he did it by raging and sobbing over the horror of it. Jesus was going to bring the fix like Martha wanted, and he was going to bring soothing that Mary wanted, that they so desperately wanted and needed. But his first response was to honor the horrifying tragedy of human mortality. And you and I, we, we don't usually include that in any of our thinking. We don't even want to have, make it a topic or a subject of conversation. And that's the point I want us to see as we're looking at the heartbreak of Jesus, that Jesus is shattered by the reality of our mortality. Jesus Christ is broken up about the reality that this is an injustice to the cosmos, that human beings have to die. It's not okay. Because the original plan of God did not include the death of human beings that were made in his image. That's not, that was not God's plan. The gospel, which is church speak for the good news, the pro- pro- profound goodest of good news, that story does not begin with humans are pathetic sinners. Now, I know a lot of us grew up in church cultures thinking, well, that's the, that's the beginning sentence, right, of the gospel story. You are pathetic sinners. No, that is not what the gospel story starts with. Humans are pathetic sinners. The gospel story starts in Genesis. It begins with the story of God is amazingly good. God's amazingly good. It starts this description of God. He's creative. He's generous. He's beautiful. He's engaged. He lavishes good within and to his creation. God made Adam and Eve in his image, meaning that he has given humanity this capacity to relate to him and to live with him in this extravagant garden temple that Genesis called Eden and to mean to hang out with him like that forever. Which means when you read Genesis, you're supposed to pick up the fact mortality was never God's desire. Never. And yet, one of the things that we see as we look at Genesis, God is lavishly, extravagantly good. Guess what other part of his goodness includes? The choice to love and trust God or to say, no, I will love and trust Life on my terms as I can grab it. He had to give, because he's lavish and his extravagant goodness, he had to give us choice because if he didn't have a choice, we'd be robots and we didn't, it wouldn't be an act of actual, tangible love back to God. So there had to be choice. And sadly, Adam and Eve chose. We as their daughters and sons continue to choose love and trust of us creating the horror of mortality that God never desired for us. And so Jesus raged and sobbed over what we brought on ourselves through our seizing life on my terms project. Jesus also raged and he sobbed because he knew what this next creative loving act of his power was going to bring upon himself. He knew what was coming. Now, I want to think, maybe you want to think this too, I would want to think that raising Lazarus from the dead would have turned everybody into Israel into fangirls and fanboys of Jesus. I mean, that's what I'd think. He raised somebody from the dead. They resuscitated miraculously. Everybody in Israel is going to become a fan. But Jesus knew the human heart better than I do. He knew 
that the religious leaders were already out working to try to silence him. And there had already been murmurs and whispers of, let's kill this guy. And he also knew that this act of loving power would push the religious leaders to the brink of literally shredding the Mosaic law. Defiantly. Because they thought, the ends justify the means. In fact, if you want to just look at your Bible, John chapter 11, scooch right on down to verse 53, which says, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, quote, religious leaders plotted to take Jesus' life. A.K.A. the religious leaders shredded the Mosaic law and they put out a hit on Jesus. See, Jesus knew that the Lazarus-raising miracle It was going to lead him to the agony of a cross. It was going to lead him to, he was the perfect son of God for all of the 32 to 33 years of his life. He had in his, not in his sinless state, never had the feeling of that God the father was distant or couldn't be heard or seen or experienced. But he knew he was going to hang on that cross and he was going to feel for the first time the inky blackness of where'd you go, God? Why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbaitani. In the Aramaic of why, by God, have you forsaken me? He knew he would do that, and he knew that he would be breathing his own last drowning breath, just like you and I will at some point. When my dad was going through his last hours in December, um, Alita and I, we, we spent some time with him as much as we could. And Alita, man, what a rock star. Um, she respectfully sort of followed my heart and my lead for my dad, because it was my dad. And as my dad was in that thin space between heaven and earth, he was in this space where it's like his eyes were all wide open. His, he was gasping at every breath, um, but he was unresponsive. And so all I could do was just hold my dad's hand and talk to him and sing over him. Did a very lame rendition of Amazing Grace because I was crying a lot. And Alita just sort of sat there powerlessly present, but present with me. And when you're a mover and a shaker like my wife, Alita, it, 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 to just be present and powerless and just watch mortality win, that's hard. It's hard. And when we got my dad situated with comfort care, which is medical speak for pain meds that kept him comfortable, and got his support team set up for him and hoping that I could, I could make it back before he passed, we turned to leave because we had to go. And as we left, Alita said these words. She, said, she started to cry, and she said, See if I can say it. Um, It's so sad that anyone ever has to die. It's so sad that anyone has to die. And I don't know what it was. It was, I mean, talk about a no-duh statement. It's obvious, right? But there was something about her tears and there was something about her words that were helpful to me because it helped me slow down and honor the tragedy of death. For anyone. Now, you got to know, I mean, of course, I've taken comfort in the fact 
that Jesus' resurrection has fixed this like Martha wanted because my dad is home with Jesus. I take great comfort in that. And of course, I, the Spirit has soothed this as Mary asked Jesus to do, has sat with me as I've cried, and I know that I felt the Spirit's comfort, and I felt the Spirit's comfort through my kids and through Alita and through my friends and through, thank you so much, you as a church. But I have to be honest. I honestly think that the most helpful and hopeful, interestingly, part of my grief journey when I was busted open the most, I think, was when I was sitting on my back porch and I remembered Jesus, uh, not Jesus' words, Alita's words. I remembered Alita's words. It's so sad that anyone ever has to die. And I sat there with the Holy Spirit and in my rage, I F-bombed death. Just I'll let it have it. I F-bombed death. And as the hot tears ran down my cheeks, by F-bombing death, I honored death. And I became, I think, a little bit more, no, I know, I became a little bit more broken to God as I honored the horror of death by cursing it. And by the way, no, no cute little animals or children were harmed as I F-bombed death. <laughs> What I'm trying to get at is this. In my own journey, Jesus is shattered by the reality of our mortality. What that means for us is, is we need to be people who can honor the wreckage of death and let that fact deepen us. To honor the wreckage and let it deepen you. Now, what do I mean when I say this, honor the wreckage of death? What, what are you talking about? Well, let me try to use the Bible to try to explain what I mean. Instead of being people who ignore and try to evade mortality. And you might be one of these people. Like, you're already, like, freaked out that I'm even talking about death because some people get so freaked out, like, if you even talk about it, somebody might die. We have this, like, weird magical thinking. Even, I want to even just say this to some of you. Some of you have never sat down with your loved ones and developed your own DNRs about your last wishes when you are on your deathbed because you're so freaked out about talking about death that you're afraid somebody's going to die if you talk about death. And can I please say to you, please get over that. Have those conversations now and get them done. But I'm talking about not just that practically, but I'm talking about this. We can, and I'm going to put them all up on the screen. And I'm going to go through them. First of all, we can rage against mortality. When a loved one dies, and how do I know you can do this? Because of the scriptures we just studied, John chapter 11. We can, just like Jesus, we can add to our longings that Jesus fix it and soothe it. We can also add, we can rage and say, this is unjust. This is wrong. This is a cosmic wrong. No. To rage against mortality. But we can also do this. We can reassess our, our priorities. Because we're mortal. Let me give you a couple passages from Scripture. Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To be able to be people when we look at death and we honor the fact that I am mortal is to understand the fact that there is something about wisdom and know my time is limited. I am not going to live forever. I will with Jesus, but this life in this broken world has a time frame. 
The second one I want to read from you is Solomon, who's one of the wisest men who ever lived in the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. I quote this at almost every memorial service I lead. He said, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because death is the destiny of every man, and the living need to take this to heart. It's meaning that we need to have some sobriety about that. It's to like rage against mortality, reassess our priorities, and the final one is this. And then, of course, rejoice even more that Jesus has defeated the injustice of our mortality and defeated death. It, it, it expands our range of being so much bigger in our rejoicing that God, Jesus has come to defeat this thing. See, in the same way that God can use our suffering, if we'll let him, to drive us more deeply into his heart, God can also use the horror of mortality, if we'll let him, to drive us more deeply into his heart and to deepen us as his image bearers. I don't want to uninvite um, Carrie and, and Todd to come up who... I guess Carrie thinks they look like twins. Um, And as they get set up, um, what I want to say this as as I finish is that when we gaze at these phrases of Jesus and try to create a picture of Jesus where it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and he wept. When we do that, we learn to join Jesus in raging and sobbing over our, our mortality. And we also know that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, will be joining our loved ones raging and sobbing when we die. And I think if we have this image, here's what happens. I think when we have this image more clear in our heads, we become people who are far more committed to join Jesus in reversing all the forms of decay that are brought on by human sin. I think when you have a great sense of the horror of mortality, you become more committed to that. You become more committed to join Jesus in reversing injustice, in reversing inhumanity to humankind, in reversing human suffering, in reversing human isolation, in reversing cultural constructs that diminish human thriving in the culture in which you and I live. I think we become better at that. And I also think we become more committed to join Jesus in the renewing of everything of everything. So as we begin this season of Lent, the first thing we're looking at is Jesus' first response to death, which is to rage and to sob. It's to look at mortality in the face and rage and then let that rage stir you and me to join the indestructible one in reversing the things that need reversing and in renewing the things that need to be renewed. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've conquered death. But honestly, at least for myself, thank you for helping me grasp, well, don't just go blow by death and just look at the solution. Look at the tragedy too. God, help us to be people who take a look and gaze at and honor and rage at the injustice of what death is. And then we become people who do walk in wisdom and we can honor our days be smart about how we live our days. God, thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.